0: editor-at-large at Bloomberg News, sat down for an in-depth, wide-ranging, exclusive interview with Bond legend Bill Gross, who officially, officially retires today. Eric is in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio here in New York. I've already told you how amazing this is and how I was late to work because I was watching it. Be careful, Carol. My head will
2: not be able to fit through the door on the way out.
0: We'll just make the doorways wider. And it's an even bigger wider.
3: studio.
0: So tell us, first of all... Um, You sat down with Bill Gross. He's so well-known to our audience. What did you want to know? Because you were given a lot of time.
2: I was, and I wanted to know. I went in wanting to know the things that Bill hadn't talked about. So, for example, I asked him, and this is the question that yielded the most interesting answer. I asked him whether all of his personal travails, we've read about his nasty divorce, we know about... The way in which he was kicked out of the firm he co-founded, PIMCO. And those are tough to take for anybody. So I, th- I think I asked a fair question, which was, you know, did it affect your performance? Was some of the trouble you had putting up good numbers while at Janice Henderson the result of these personal ordeals? And he said, actually, no, um, I've got Asperger's syndrome. And...
0: Not what you it expected, helps me right?
2: compartmentalize. Yeah. And I'm sitting there thinking, hang on a minute. I remember in the back of my mind a reference that Bill Gross made in an investment outlook that he wrote in February of 2016, in which he talked about Michael Lewis's best selling book, The Big Short, and he made reference to Michael Burry, one of the heroes of that book. And there was this this it, it was a cryptic reference. He talked about how he shared an affliction with michael burry as well as an admiration for him and so i thought hang on a minute is that what you're saying and he said yeah he said that's that's what i'm that is precisely what i was saying then and that's what i'm talking about now the diagnosis came very late in life mm. and for bill gross it was illuminating because it explained for him so much of the person he is but didn't understand why he has Difficulty relating to some people while why others feel as though he's a person who lacks empathy why he Needs sort of space and doesn't like to be disturbed on the trading floor This was legendary at Pimco. You had to pass him a note, right? If you wanted to get his attention, you couldn't start talking to him or you you risked getting reamed out and Bill was an irascible guy with an infamously short temper
1: and you know he also talked uh quite a bit no,
2: well ahead.
0: before we do that because we have a little clip of the interview hmm. where he where he kind of learned that he had this syndrome and it was the courtesy of his wife well he yes he's talking he's talking
2: us. to his wife about this passage that he read in the big short and it's in the course of this conversation that he finds out that that she knew she didn't know that he had it for certain because you can't get diagnosed unless you submit yourself to an examination. But listen to it, and I think you'll get an inkling of how it is that she knew. She said, well, you know, when we were uh, having dinner with Bill Gates and Melinda, and that was like five years before, at a Duke reunion fundraiser at his home, she said, we were sitting uh, at the table, and I looked at Gates, and I looked at you, and I looked at Gates, and I looked at you. I said, you were doing exactly the same thing at the same time. Your mannerisms were all the same. And so uh, I had heard that he had Asperger's in a mild form. So I, I went to a psychologist and I described it. And the psychologist said, He has Asperger's. So I said, uh, Why didn't you tell me? And she said, Because I thought it might hurt your feelings.
0: Isn't wow. that remarkable?
2: Amazing amazing but she knew. so she, she knew. knew and she didn't as she sa- as he says you know she didn't tell him cuz she didn't want to hurt his feelings and then uh, and then of course subsequently he read this passage and they had a conversation about it and she said yeah you do have asperger's i've known it for years and huh. she went into that explanation so he went to see a psychiatrist and right. and was diagnosed after one meeting
1: wow so a lot more to talk about there. And there's so many things that, it, that I would love to get to. But one of the things, just because it's been so front of mind, is wealth tax. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you entered into that with him, which, I mean, that's coming up more and more from all corners, especially the left, AOC specifically. What did it t- Give us a hint or give us a, a taste of what he said about
2: that. Well, I've known that Bill is thoughtful on the subject because a few years ago in his Investment Outlooks, he started writing about the problem of inequality. Right. And he raised you know, the universal basic income, which was a hot topic, say, two or three years ago, and didn't really decide one way or the other whether he wanted to own it. But given the point that you make, Jason, that this is very much not just a social issue. It's right. now a political issue, and it's a political issue that will be decided in some way, shape, or form probably in the next election. I had to bring it up with Bill Gross. And as I suspected he might be— he is much more sympathetic to what's going on in the progressive part of the American political spectrum than, than you might otherwise imagine because he's a billionaire. He's been in capital markets. Right. You know, he, he still describes himself as a capitalist, yeah. but he says capitalism is broken and we need to restore the balance.
0: You can watch this entire interview because Eric really explored so many different topics with Bill Gross. Check it out at uh, Bloomberg.com, hear it on Bloomberg Best this weekend, and on Bloomberg Radio. Eric Schatzberg. Thank you. Really great reporting. Editor-at-large, Bloomberg News, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Hit
1: all right, so it's time for Bloomberg Technology. Awesome. Business Week Technology, I should say. I didn't even say it right. It's Business Week Technology, Carol.
0: We're going to give you, you know, some give leeway a, today. A you just came back on a flight. I
1: did. Business right. Week Technology. Eric Newcomer is here with us with clearly the biggest technology story of the day, and that is Lyft filing for its IPO under the ticker symbol LIFT on the NASDAQ. Shocking, <laughs> shocking. But it is interesting, finally, to really dig into the numbers. What did you find when you got into that filing?
4: Uh, you know, it's a, it's a story of growing revenue and growing losses. I yeah. feel like... I've heard this one before. Yeah, exactly. I feel like I have to say it every time. But, I mean, it's amazing on both sides Uh you know, annual revenue is at 2.2 billion now, which for Lyft is pretty amazing. I yeah. mean, back in 2016 you had a basically $300 million revenue company that looked like will it even survive against this much larger Uber trying to just crush it and destroy it. And then Uber has its tumbles in 2017 and now we have a multi-billion dollar second place ride-hailing company on the revenue side. So I think that's a big victory and, and you know, then we can talk about the losses, which are at $991 million in a year, which are substantial. Round and it up. Keep, it's a billion dollars. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they keep growing. You know, uh, There isn't a clear path for how they just
1: disappear. Yeah, so let's talk about that. So why, why is this not a profitable business ultimately? Right. So, Where are they spending all
4: this money that they're not making? Yeah, so you sort of hope, if you wanted it to be solved, that it would be research and development, that they're crazy about autonomous vehicles. Maybe someday they'll figure it out. Or they'll sell it and then that'll be gone it'll be problem solved. No. Like the major cost here is cost of revenue, mm. which is cost associated with just doing the business, mm. providing insurance. So a lot of their costs are just getting getting drivers on the road and passengers working. So that's a lot more worrying than if it were researched and development. I think 10% is R&D. And they're spending a lot on marketing and everything like that. And then the question will just be, you know, do you retain – you know, the value of the marketing you spend because you've gained those users. Do or You they? have to keep spending. Do they? Do they? That's an ongoing experiment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: well, we saw some things on Twitter, people going through. He was going to answer it the first
1: time <laughs> asked. Okay. it. Yeah.
4: Do they? Do
0: they? It's important. It's important.
4: Damn it, Eric.
0: <laughs> so?
4: I mean, you know, the, the. I think Uber will be interesting because it does seem like the losses there. Have somewhat leveled out at a huge number. You know, you, they get to a billion. There's so many different ways to slice Uber's losses that I'm. I don't even. Uber like. or Lyft?
0: Who are we talking We're about? We're talking now? about Uber now. Okay. I'm, okay.
4: I'm saying Uber has gotten so big that right. the loss has sort of started to hold somewhat steadier. It's not going to like, you know, it's, it's limiting around a billion. You know, it. It depends how you measure it, but but I think there's some upward ceiling on how much they'll lose and the revenues. Keep growing Then there's a hope That they can outrun them
0: The thing we have to ask Is because The cover story Of the magazine this week Is all about peak car, right? We talk about peak oil, peak car, whether or not global auto sales have really kind of topped out. And one of the big reasons is they just talk about, you know, ride sharing really growing in places like China or Beijing, where you've got, it's expensive to have a car and you have more and more big cities imposing kind of charges if you wanna be in the city proper. So could we see at some point, maybe it's gonna take a few more years where ride sharing just really, really explodes. And you truly do have folks saying, I don't want a car. I don't even care about a driver's license, and we've seen those numbers come down, you know, from teenagers. So I'm just curious: that, do we have to be a little bit more patient for these models to, to that, really? That take is off? a
4: good case for Uber and Lyft. I mean, <laughs>
3: um, I,
4: w- I did
0: not.
3: I, they did not talk
4: I, to me. I think Lyft has it a little easier because they can grow into what Uber's already done, yeah, and into the city, you know, denser into cities and penetrate more of the market. The question is how big, right, is the market and Uber's revenue growth has really slowed. I mean, Q3 to Q4 last year was 2%, right? And they're investing heavily in Eats. So I think we're getting to the point where there's a question, are they still growing ride-hailing revenue significantly or at Mm -hmm. all? And so if they're hitting a ceiling, and that's why Uber has to have this kitchen sink, we do freight, we do Eats, we do scooters, we do autonomous vehicles, we talk about flying cars. If that's why, because they've sort of started to see that ceiling, and I'd say maybe, maybe not. And Lyft is going to grow into that right. size.
0: Doesn't it kind of amaze you? Because I think about how much we all love to use these ride-sharing services, right? Yeah. And so I just it just feels like it should be a great business. But well,
4: people are very price sensitive. Yes. I, yeah. I think that's – and that fits into the whole loss question. I mean, in New York, there are a lot of trade-offs. And, you know, any city, you're going to have trade-offs between the public transportation and biking and – Of course, cabs exist, you know, and and then if you live in uh, suburbia, you know, there's the question you maybe already have a car. Is it really worth like there there are all these financial questions Some crosswinds for
1: sure. Well, we know you will continue to keep an eye on this, the latest filings, and especially as Uber comes out and you're able to compare and contrast. Mm -hmm. Look forward to having you back. Eric Newcomer uh, bringing us the Business Week technology look today.
0: Issue of the magazine. You heard um... Am I still in Berlin. (laughs) This
4: is totally it.
0: Uh, This week's issue of the magazine asked the question: Basically, have we hit peak car? It is the Business Week cover story, and let's get into it with Jim Ellis, Assistant Managing Editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. Nice to have you here. Thank you. This is fascinating stuff. We talk about peak oil, right? You know, oil kind of topping out uh, in terms of usage and pricing. Uh, Peak car.
5: Peak car. I mean, it's interesting because so many people keep thinking, yeah. oh, you know, cars will continue to grow forever. And we've been also had a pretty good run in recent years where right. we've seen, especially record, years, record right? years. I mean, we've went through a period of, you know, year after year where we kept saying, oh, well, you know, cars will not only will we sell more cars that we can continue to charge more and more for cars. And now we've sort of hit a point that we're calling peak car that um, suggests that not that the automobile goes away, but that we're hitting an inflection point because there are alternatives now to cars increasingly that um, will mean that we won't sell as many when the cycle comes back the next time around. What's happened? A big thing is mobility is suddenly becoming the issue rather than just owning a personal car.
0: LIFT IPO today. That's
5: it. And people want to go from A to B, and they're increasingly saying, well, it doesn't necessarily have to be in my own vehicle. Part of that is simply because vehicles have gotten a lot more expensive. I mean, the average cost in the U.S. this past year was almost $38,000. I mean, so the industry is was amazing. The, I mean, the, just, I'm showing my age here, but
3: like, <laughs> that is yeah.
1: – I, if I think about, like, when I was wanting a car when I was
5: 16 years old,
1: like, 38000 might as well have been, like, a million dollars. Well,
5: right? that's one of the reasons that um, younger people are now postponing driving longer. I mean, it used to be, if you were 16 years old, one of the first things you did after your birthday was running to get a driver's license. What we've discovered now is that last year, you know, less than a third of 16-year-olds went and got a driver's no license. No kidding. And that's that amazing. And that's just, in the, you know, basically 15 years prior, you were... Up at a half yeah. of kids who are doing that. That's also being replicated not just here, but in Britain it's the same thing. They're down to where it's close to a quarter of people who are eligible to get a driver's license aren't getting them. So this later, this postponement of driving is also hurting, and also the reorganization that we're seeing all over the world. I mean, we're basically, it used to be, you have to have a car if you want to go someplace to, yeah. to do things. Now, younger people want to live in center cities again. Mm-hmm. And more and more of the world's population is moving to these mega cities. You, you leave the New York and you say, oh, New York is big, but you compare that to you know, Beijing. Beijing is bigger than both New York and L.A. together. And, you know, and it's just one of a number of large cities. It's not the largest city in China. I mean, it's it's right. just an amazing sort of transformation that's going on in much of the world. And as more and more people live in smaller, smaller spaces, they can actually share rides and they can use ride-hailing services a lot more effectively and cheaply than you know uh, than just. Owning your own car.
0: Well, you also talk about congestion charges in cities, right? We see that uh, we've heard about it a lot in yeah. terms of London, but we see it in other cities. We are now talking about it here in New York.
5: Yeah, I mean the idea that you know for various reasons, some some places want to have congestion pricing simply mm-hmm. because they say. The pollution is so bad. We've got to uh, stop the pollution. So, therefore, we want to keep cars out. I and mean, that's a thing in uh, Beijing. Right. Some places say, well, we, you know, it's just the idea of the sheer traffic that's here. That's one of the, the drivers here in New York. We've got to figure out some way to keep all these cars out of here. But now we're saying it's not just Beijing anymore. It's Shanghai. It is um, Madrid. It's, I mean, there All sorts of towns are looking for ways to charge you to drive into city center cities because that's a way to keep you from doing it. I mean, basically now to drive into central London, it costs 11 and a half pounds, which is close to $15. That's a lot. That's a lot of money, and it adds up during the day. And in Beijing, they're actually... um, you know, sort of they restrict the number of cars that you can actually buy. They figured out a different way to do it. I mean, they say, oh, well, you know, maybe you can pay it, but you can't. There's a lottery, right? There's a lottery to get cars, and the lottery is much lower than you'd expect. I mean, the lottery now is only allowing about 100,000 new cars per year to be licensed in Beijing. That's a, that's a, a, a town of over 20 million people. So one of the interesting things, we only got about a
1: minute left, but one of the interesting things about one of the stories in this issue is that the auto companies, though, and of course maybe they're going to say this, but they're like, look, it's going to be fine. We're going to figure this out. What was your takeaway from that, and do you buy it?
0: Talk in their book a little bit, uh, Well, I mean,
5: they're all saying, oh, you know, the number will go up. But the, at the same time, you, you sort of follow the money, the right. money that they're investing. They're investing heavily now in mobility services, you know. Um, you know, investing in, well, GM invested in Lyft. Yeah. And um, you're seeing over and over that people are, they're going into car sharing. They're, they're, they'll say they're hedging their bets, but they're looking where the money is going to be in the future. The yeah. money is going to be in things that charge by the mile, not by the car. Right. So, so interesting. It is a must-read package of stories. Jim
1: Ellis helping put it all together, assistant managing editor for Bloomberg Business Week. It is the cover straight. It's also a cool cover. I, I love the stack saw, of cars.
0: I just saw the cover. It's just a stack of cars, yeah, right? Cars like
1: in a junkyard
3: there. kind of <laughs> thing. You suddenly realize that
0: this could be the start of something. Big. All right. Well, let's
1: get into the world of venture capital. Capital. Uh, We like to look around all over the country, Carol, because we can get a little bit in a rut just looking at Silicon Valley. You know, we know from being here in New York, everything that's going on here. And every city um, is
0: really trying to tap into the tech sector.
1: And we've heard this when we've been traveling uh, a bit, you know, down in Atlanta. That's Mm -hmm. something I saw one of my venture capital buddies down there when we were there. Uh, Craig Shedler joins us. He is a venture partner with Northwestern Mutual. He is out in Milwaukee. That's where he joins us on the phone. Craig, great to have you here with Carol and myself.
3: Thank you, Carolyn Jason. Glad to be on.
1: So tell us what's going on uh, out there, especially from a corporate venture capital perspective because I feel like that's a that's a sort of sub subspecies, as it were uh, that that people don't quite always understand.
3: Yeah, I, I think you you characterize it correctly as a sort of a subspecies of a venture capital landscape. I think it's a rapidly growing a uh, segment within venture capital uh, I saw some numbers recently. That was a record year for corporate venture activity, and globally, a number of close to 58 billion dollars invested by corporations and startups around the world. um... So, yeah, I think it's really become you know a key constituency within the venture capital community, and and if you look at what a, a corporate venture fund can bring to the table, I think it's obviously capital and, and institutional investment knowledge, but also opportunities for partnerships and really ways that um, I think a, a, a corporate venture fund can impact and, and help a, a portfolio company to grow.
1: Right. Well, and I'm glad you, you went exactly where I wanted to go, which is this idea that not all money is created equal uh, at this point. I mean, the world and, you know, Carol and I have been talking a lot about the fact that I just got back from Berlin, the big super return PE venture capital conference. And if one thing is clear from spending time with those guys is the world is wash in money, <laughs> for better or worse. Mm-hmm. Um, so give us some examples about how you guys think about essentially making your money, and I'm not being glib, sort of more valuable uh, to a potential uh, portfolio company?
3: Yeah, you know, I I think there's a few different ways. I mean, first of all, um, you know, we bring the knowledge of, of, you know, for companies that are looking to sell into large enterprises, um, we can help navigate a large enterprise and understand what it takes to sell into. So if you're trying to sell into, you know, say a Fortune 500 company, you know, we can be helpful with that and understanding how to navigate various organizations, um, and then secondarily, you know, just being able to bring the, the resources of our company. So if it's something focused on financial services, you know, well, how can we be a potential partner? Uh, I mean, either as an early customer or somebody that's a go-to-market partner. Uh, so I think there's really a variety of ways in which, you know, we can be helpful to our portfolio.
0: Hey, so what kind of uh, interesting trends, investments, startups are kind of coming your way at this point? Because I do think everybody is, you know, kind of going after somewhat similar things. But I am, I am, I am curious to see if you know you guys have noticed something else where maybe you can specialize in and invest in and cultivate within uh, Milwaukee.
3: Yeah, I, you know, I, I think there's, you know, a few areas in which which we try to focus. Um, you know, within, within the Midwest and in Wisconsin and Milwaukee in particular, a, little, a lot of interest in advanced manufacturing, uh, looking at ways in which we can leverage kind of the base of the, you know, the traditional Milwaukee economy and, and bring, you know, more technology-based businesses here to support that. Um, so I think, you know, advanced manufacturing has been a different area of, of interest. Um, artificial intelligence, you know, AI and, and machine learning in a variety of, of contexts, whether it be in financial services, healthcare, and other areas, you know, that's attracted a lot of interest as well.
1: And so what do you need? I mean, Carol was sort of alluded to this earlier, sort of a lot of uh, communities are trying to sort of get this going. What 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 do you need to sort of continue uh, to make Milwaukee a, a really vibrant venture center and, and healthy for for entrepreneurs? What, what are the next steps there?
3: You know I, I think there's always you know entrepreneurs will always say there's more need for capital, and I think if unless you're in Silicon Valley or in New York, Boston or a couple other areas, I think there's always a feel that there's a need for more capital. So I think the you know the opportunity for venture investors, either locally or to, from other areas to come in and find good opportunities is here, and I think there's you know lots of businesses always looking to to raise money. So I think capital is one part of it. Um, I, I think other entrepreneurs are always helpful. i think if if you look at a lot of emerging, tech ecosystems, they are generally um, you know, greatly advanced by having a successful exit. So if there's a, you know, a technology company that grows and is either acquired for you know, a substantial exit or that, that goes public, uh, I think those things tend to be sort of the, the, the epicenters of additional activity, whether that be more angel investment, um, you know, a whole host of technology. Uh, experts then go out and form companies on their own. So I think those are a couple of the key ingredients that are really important for, for Milwaukee and for other tech ecosystems looking to grow.
0: Hey, Craig, what does it also tell you about kind of in terms of the flows you're seeing or the ideas that are coming up and the amount of money to invest in things? Does it tell you anything about kind of the general health of our economy at this point? And just got about 40 seconds left.
3: Yeah, you know, I, I think it, it, it does say a lot. And I think, you know, people talk about are we late in the cycle? And I think there's some indicators of that. But I think overall, I think it generally shows good health. You know, investors um, that look to commit to funds continue to invest in ventures and asset class. And I think, you know, valuations have, you know, I think sort of leveled off, which I think is always a good sign. So I think overall um, signs point to, to, to continue positive growth.
1: So you a Bucks fan. How are you feeling about the Bucks <laughs> these days?
3: Hey, it's hard not to like the Bucks when you're the, when you have the best record in the NBA. Things always look good.
1: Well, I mean, you've also got the most <laughs> exciting player by all accounts. right? I mean, it's amazing to watch.
3: And a new arena. So you put that together with a good team, and it's a good combination.
1: Yeah, it's funny. We've spent a lot of time with uh, some of the owners of the team who obviously mostly are here in New York, and they, they've invested uh, pretty heavily. All right. Well, yeah. good luck to you on that front. Always good to catch up. Craig Shedler is venture partner with Northwestern Mutual joining us on the phone from Milwaukee.
0: Fascinated to hear what he has to say about in terms of money flows and where they're putting it and what it says about the economy. Plus the
1: Greek freak. Go
0: Bucks. Anyway. <laughs> You're listening to Bloomberg Radio
1: i driving
4: in my car, I turn on the radio hey,
1: How about you let me drive?
4: Oh, no, 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 no Who's
1: gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving Drive home Excuse me, I want to drive
4: Just drive, baby Just It's the question that drives us
5: is the drive to the close that punky music will drive us till the dawn on Bloomberg Radio
0: it is time for The Drive to the Close on this Friday. Ryan Dietrich is back with us. He's Senior Market Strategist at LPL Financial, $659 billion in assets under management. Ryan with us from Charlotte, North Carolina. Hey, Ryan, nice to have you here with us. You know, Dave Wilson, who always gets my brain going a little bit when he brings in his chart of the day, and it talks specifically about a chart that looked at earnings. And if you take out uh, the unprofitable companies, you find that the pace of earnings for the S&P 500, surpassing the Russell 2000 in the, in the fourth quarter after, I guess, trailing in each of the first three quarters. So those big caps, if you look at it that way, kind of impressive. And that, that may be, according to one researcher, may indicate that there's some more um, momentum maybe for more of this year. When you look at earnings, how do you dice and slice it? What does it tell you about where we go in terms of uh, the equity markets?
5: Hey
6: Carol, first off, thanks for having me back. You know, we're encouraged by what just happened in the fourth quarter. We know it was a big market sell-off, but we also know analysts drastically cut their estimates for the S&P 500. Average person was looking for about 177 operating earnings a couple months ago. Now it's less than 170 dollars a share for the S&P 500. We're entering the 10-year anniversary of this bull market. What's the one word I think that you can continue to use to summarize everything? It's been fear, right? Every time we get a pullback, people cut their estimates, get worried, then the asteroid avoids the Earth once again, and then we continue to go higher. So we think what just happened with all those cuts in earnings, that's a lower bar. I'm 40 years old. I can't jump like I used to. But trust me, if the bar is lower, I can get over it. And that's what we think the market's going to have uh, going forward. But I hadn't heard that stat that Dave mentioned. That's kind of interesting. And we do like large caps over small caps this year. Yeah. I get it. Small caps have definitely bounced more. They were hit harder last year. Right. Later in the cycle, you mentioned that steepening yield curve uh, that's starting to happen. Some of those things can help large caps over small caps. That's kind of how we're positioning our portfolios and models for our investment. This year.
1: Well, and Ryan, I, I like what you said about sort of readjusting expectations and things like that, because I, I feel like if we went back and talked to ourselves four or five months ago and said, this is where earnings estimates were are going to be. We would collectively freak out and be like, "Oh my God, we're going to be in a you right. know in a recession." I talked it's to myself to this terrible. morning, actually, you did? just you, about you, that. You went back, you went back to yours, you went back to November Carol, and like, hey, November Carol, this is what's going to be going on with earnings. Um, but Ryan, don't you think that like the the market has, has sort of gotten yeah. okay with this it's in sort point. of a strange way?
6: No, I think you're exactly right, Jason. I mean talk about what you'd think to yourself. Just think back on, you know, Christmas Eve if you'd say we've up nineteen percent. I think you probably think you're crazy talking to yourself, but but it's reality, it's what happened. And the uncertainty over the Fed, what it's gonna do, the government shutdown, uncertainty over China and trade, all those things are starting to become resolved, and that's why we bounced like we have. Now, Carol, I know you know you like when I talk technicals. We'll talk about that for a second here. Advanced decline lines, how many stocks are going up versus how many stocks are going down? The NYC advanced decline line just made a new all-time high earlier this week. That says market breadth. More stocks are participating in this move. That is usually is a sign that eventual price follows and makes new highs. We saw this in 2016. Breath broke out well ahead of the S&P 500 making new highs in 2016, and it was a sign better things are coming. I see some similarities with 2016 where breath is breaking out, and I think it means eventual new highs probably will come sometime in the second half of this year on the S&P 500. You
0: sound rather positive. And optimistic. Well,
6: yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, I know it was only guys last month and we kind of said the same thing that, hey, we don't think there's going to be a retest. Believe me, this is the early part of, I'm sorry, the easy part of the bounce. The next 10% yeah. is not going to be just super easy. You know, put the call ratios, investor sentiment polls, there are some optimism coming in from the historically low levels we saw late last year. But just still big picture, like I said, with those earnings cut, when we have uh, pullbacks, everyone gets worried. It's going to be rocky. We're late in the cycle. There's going to be more volatility. But the Bottom line is earnings do drive long term stock gains. We still, you know, earnings estimates, I think, are about 3 or 4 percent approximately gains this year on the SP 500. What people are looking for. We think, you know, 6 or 7 percent earnings growth is likely and could happen as China gets resolved and more confidence comes back. Companies invest in themselves using CapEx to extend this 10 year economic cycle. We still think there's maybe a year or two left of growth at least.
1: And What could get in the way of that? I mean, you talked about all these sort of exogenous Mm -hmm. things going on, geopolitical and whatnot. But, you know, we were talking at the top of the show with uh, Joe Weisenthal and Dave Wilson, who who Carol's already mentioned and who you know, about the fact that, you know, the market was sort of like, OK, with a a backdrop of a whole lot of turmoil. So what's going to really freak folks out?
6: Right. Well, I mean, I think it's kind of some of the knowns. It's the China stuff, right? If yeah. that were to dissolve, that could be an issue. And the global slowdown. I mean, it's it's real. I mean, Europe is slowing down. China is slowing down. Japan's slowing down. The U.S. has been slowing down. Now, you look at the year-to-day gains, you'd never know it. Uh, but still, the global slowdown could continue after we get a resolution with China. Most That's why you know the manufacturing numbers today weren't that great overall, yet the market's up. And here's a fun stat for you guys. You think about the worst sell-offs, what happens on Fridays? Market gets killed. Well, today's a Friday again. So far this year, I'm assuming we're going to finish green the next five minutes here. The S&P 500 on Friday this year has been down once. There is buying risk appetite ahead of weekends. It's happening again as we speak. That is the market's way of saying, hey, we're not worried about over the weekend. We're going to be buyers, and that's usually a good thing.
0: Yeah, that's actually interesting. That's a really kind of interesting going, point. Right, going into a weekend, and you often have seen investors kind of back off because they're a little bit nervous. I do also feel like U.S.-China took a back seat this week to some extent. I mean, there was conversations and so on and so forth, and there's some movements but I do feel like we're kind of waiting to see if ultimately we get some deal done, well, signed. There's, a, yeah. all, there's memorandums of understanding or what have you. Well, right? There's talk until,
1: of a potential Mar-a-Lago summit yeah, uh, right. later this month. But so. you want to
0: kind of start seeing, like, all right. Some we, real tangible. Exactly. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. Let's do it already.
1: And you know, you're right. And, and honestly, hey, who broke that story? was Bloomberg,
6: right? It's a good job, guys. But nonetheless, if you look at under the surface, copper. Copper is breaking out. China's up over 20% this year. The fact copper is breaking out to us says, hey, the global economy might be doing a little bit better, and China uses more copper than anybody. So that's, again, the market's way of saying... Maybe there's some type of positive resolution on the horizon uh, with uh, that industrial metal doing so well so far this year.
0: All right. Going to leave it there. Ryan, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Ryan Dietrich, he's Senior Market Strategist at LPL Financial, $659 billion in assets under management. Joining us on the phone from Charlotte, North Carolina. I was just taking a look at copper. It looked like it bottomed uh, on the 27th of last year and it's had quite a big bounce back so that's an interesting point that he makes i'm just trying to see what it's up uh almost 10 percent.
1: thanks for listening to bloomberg business week you can subscribe to the podcast on itunes soundcloud or bloomberg.com you can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m eastern only on bloomberg radio